Welcome. This is the latest in a series of lectures that the European Institute uh, holds in collaboration with APCO Worldwide, uh, which facilitates a series of lectures on different perspectives on Europe. Now, you're particularly welcome because this is an unusual time for our lectures. You, normally they're in the evening, so we're asking you to delay your lunch rather than delaying your dinner. Uh, but thank you for, for doing that. It is in a good cause. I'm delighted to introduce our speaker, Dr. Eki Tuomi Oya. I hope that is correct. Uh, and I can tell from some of the Finns that it may not be absolutely perfect. He's uh, very familiar with an academic environment. Uh, he holds a PhD in political science and has an academic position at the University of Helsinki. He's been a member of the Finnish parliament for a number of years, for the first period in the 1970s, and then I think for the last 20 years uh, consecutively. He's been vice chairman and then, and then chairman of the Social Democratic Party in the Finnish uh, parliament. We're delighted that he's been able to find time for us in his busy schedule uh, on this visit uh, to London. Of course, the topic, the theme, could, either, could hardly be more timely in a number of respects when we think about the European Union today and in the recent past. It seems to be at the centre of our debates questions about the coherence of the European Union, questions about leadership within the European Union, uh, questions about the purpose and role uh, of the European Union, the degree of common interest, in the, indeed the interest in uh, continued coordination and cooperation, uh, advance or retreat, as it were. We read in the context of the Euro crisis uh, the discussions in Finland and elsewhere on the questions of the Greek bailouts and the uh, reactions of the, the true Finns uh, party. But this question of leadership, common interest, degree of cooperation also fits with other policy sectors as well. In particular, uh, matters of foreign policy and security. Europe, as we well know, over the last decade, has hung loose, as it were, on big questions of international intervention, whether it's the Iraq war or other issues as well. On questions of border control, some have the Schengen area, others are outside of that. Some wish it to progress, some wish it to uh, retreat. So the common feature here is of questions of um, the degree of coherence, the extent to which we share a common purpose for the European Union, and the extent to which we have a common interest in degrees of cooperation. Uh, clearly, the Foreign Minister is in an ideal uh, position to give us uh, his view, and the title, enticingly, the argument of more cooperation is more security, uh, I think is reflective, as I say, of a very topical uh, set of issues. There will be time for questions and answers later. I'm told we must all be out of the room before two o'clock, just to give you a time check. Uh, but before we do that, 
Uh, can you please join me in giving a very warm welcome to our guest speaker, the Foreign Minister of uh, Finland, uh, Dr. Eki uh, Torijoja. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the warm welcome. My basic thesis is that uh, the classical approach to foreign policy and international relations, which has been dominant ever since the uh, 1648 Treaty of Westphalen, is outdated and unworkable. Today, interdependence in things both good and bad, and whether we like the idea or not, is what governs international relations in today's globalizing world. And this applies not only to relations between states, but also more generally. The concept of absolute sovereignty uh, is a fiction that does not reflect reality any more. The multitude of various interest groups, non-governmental organizations, multinational companies, social media, and uh, other phenomena like conscious uh, consumer choices are reshaping both the uh, domestic politics and international affairs. Moreover, states no longer can claim the monopoly in international relations. And within states, especially in democracies, the leadership in foreign policy has to operate in an ever-increasing real interaction with the uh, people. In our time, foreign and security policy challenges uh, for states cannot be reduced uh, to a question about who holds control or direct political influence over a given geographical area. Issues and possible solutions are increasingly other than military or indeed dependent on uh, traditional power politics in general, and this is reflected in the expectations of citizens uh, <coughs> towards their representatives and policy makers. Top priority uh, issues including, include combating climate change, environmental and social sustainability, economic and financial stability, the fight against poverty, radicalization and terrorism, tackling issues related to failed states, as well as responding to cyber threats, natural and man-made uh, disasters, contagious diseases, organized crime, and the like. Access to global commons is already a security policy consideration of growing importance. This should mean that the international community cooperating in maintaining, developing and protecting freedom of the seas, space and cyberspace. In any country, the vital functions of society are increasingly dependent on undisrupted flows of people, energy, money, data, goods and services. When assessing the challenges of our uh, time, the central factor to be taken into account is the growth of uh, the world's population. And I recommend anyone in the audience to have a look 
uh, at how dramatic this growth has been in your own lifetime. Since my own birth at the end of the Second World War, the world's population has already more than tripled from some 2.3 billion to seven, over 7 billion today. And at the same time, we have seen a global trend of urbanization and how consumer habits uh, have become more demanding. Change has been so rapid that what was still manageable and workable only 50 years ago in a world inhabited by just a few billion people or less has already become quite unsustainable. And it may be that even at best we have only a few decades time in which to adapt our behavior to the exigencies of ecologically, socially and economically sustainable development. And I emphasize all three aspects because even if ecological sustainability is the basis, you will not achieve it without social and economic sustainability as well. And this is obviously relevant uh, to all arguments about the relative merits of uh, an, an efficiency of hard and soft power. Responding to the current and future security challenges requires deepening and widening international cooperation. It means deepening cooperation in Europe, it means global cooperation with a strong United Nations and other rules-based international institutions. It means better transatlantic cooperation. And the European Union and the US working together with other important actors such as Russia, China, India and Brazil. It also needs this cooperation to be more transparent and have better democratic legitimacy in the eyes of our peoples. We need comprehensive and uh, understanding and effective action in tackling global challenges. This requires burden sharing and contributions from all states as well as other stakeholders. And I would say that the European Union has contributed its fair share. Without the efforts uh, of the EU, many global processes of key importance may not have started or produced results. Take for example the Kyoto Protocol on Climate Change, the International Criminal Court, the upholding of international efforts in the Middle East peace process, or the launching of the Doha Round in the WTO. These are relevant examples also because many, if not all of these processes or their follow-up, is stalling or need reinforcement. This cannot be blamed on the EU, but we have to recognize that the leadership shown by the European Union is weaker today than it has been at best, and it's certainly so in relation to what is needed. The EU is needed as an effective actor when the international community responds to global challenges. But the EU itself is facing trying times, just to put it mildly. In relative terms, the old 
rich part of the world now has uh, slow growth, an aging population and a debt crisis. European states have to carry out painful economic reforms and we can have seen that large-scale demonstrations are also back in some countries, which it in itself is legitimate in any democracy. But more worryingly, they are not always non-violent. And populism and nationalist sentiments are on the rise in many European countries. What future for the EU, one may ask? And if you are a citizen uh, of an EU member state, I suppose you may go out and go on and ask how much of the future of your country should lay with the EU. Before trying to answer these questions, let me take a leap back in time. Having a background as a historian, I always stress the importance of uh, knowing one's history, because those who do not know how they have arrived to where they are now will not know how to move forward either. Without condemning entire nations or entire groups of people, one has to recognize that uh, <coughs> violence uh, in our part of the world uh, has been, which has been inflicted on ourselves and over the world in general over the centuries when narrowly defined interests and nationalism dominated our thinking in Europe. And this all culminated in two world wars without comparison in history, but there were also countless other wars, including colonialist wars far away from our part of the globe, but which we were nevertheless party to. The 1950s were the starting, were the turning point. Europeans chose cooperation and peaceful integration, starting with the coal and steel community. As economic integration advanced, more and more countries, including the uh, United Kingdom in 1973, found it to be in their interest to become part of this community. And by the time Finland joined in 1995, uh, the European project had become an openly political union was obviously political from the very beginning, but this was not always stressed. And since then, <coughs> common foreign and security uh, policy uh, uh, has been established for the European Union and later as part of it, the common security and defense policy. And thanks to all of these uh, cumulative developments unanimously, decided by the parliaments and governments of the member states, our part of the world has had by the beginning of the 21st century become known as an anchor of stability in the world. And indeed the attraction of the European Union uh, in the Western Balkans or our Eastern neighborhood or indeed other parts of the world is based very much on the fact that others aspire to join this zone of peace and stability. Many of, if not all of the landmark decisions in European integration have been taken in times of crisis. It seems to be the normal way the European Union can move forward. For instance, the common foreign and security policy and common security and defense policy 
grew out of the frustration caused by the inability uh, to act effectively in the Western Balkans crisis. What was first grandiosely proclaimed as the hour of Europe turned out to be the darkest hour of post-war Europe. But lessons were learned and in particular the UK and France have given the essential input as the EU has developed uh, more robust uh, military capabilities in crisis management, while other countries, such as Sweden and Finland, have given the impetus for developing civilian crisis management capabilities. Today, the EU's role in global affairs is weakened by a general state of uh, uh, integration and enlargement fatigue, as well as, uh, of course, the debt crisis. This fatigue can be overcome, but there's no institutional trick available uh, or any other way uh, to do this. The only way is to once again revive the political will to act together. And for that, we need three things uh, to do three things uh, that need not be bureaucratic, ideological, or conferring any new powers to the EU. First, we need to make better use of the existing treaties. Second, continue working on the EU's enlargement. And third, increase our responsiveness uh, to the concerns of our citizens. And let me explain each of these uh, three points <coughs> in more detail. Making use of the existing treaties. I think Brits and Finns uh, have something in common in the work ethic as they have a good record in implementing EU direct directives compared to the EU average. We may have more dislike for EU directives, but anyway, we respect them better than others who are formally more enthusiastic <coughs> uh, about them. <coughs> the UK, Finland, and other, northern, other countries in Northern Europe may also share in feeling uneasiness in situations uh, where political compromises transcend previous agreements. And this has been lately the case with Finland when efforts to help the Eurozone debt crisis at first overlooked the previously agreed rules of the Stability Pact and the unequivocal no bailout clause. Having said this, Finland is convinced that uh, we can best work for also our own benefit as an active member state and within the most advanced cooperation arrangements. We are not seeking to opt out of Europe or, or our responsibilities, but what we do see, want, to, want to see is everybody respecting the rules and that uh, the decisions that are taken are also effectively implemented. From a Finnish perspective, more efforts are needed to implement uh, the Lisbon Treaty in the area of common foreign and security policy. The strengthened role of the High Representative and the new European External Action Service are certainly welcome, but they need much more support from the Member States to increase or even to keep up the level of activity uh, the common foreign and security policy had prior to the Lisbon Treaty. While the High Representative is doing 
an excellent job in current difficult circumstances. Member states need to do better in giving her political support and guidance. It is high time for the EU to get rid of the long-standing problem of giving uh, to its representatives either unclear mandates that are open to all kinds of criticism or two narrow mandates that make it nearly impossible for the EU to negotiate seriously with its partners. The EU has also to improve on the strategic level, uh, strategic level guidance. The 2003 European Security Strategy and the report on its implementation five years later were forward-looking documents at the time, but a lot has since uh, happened and there is a need for a new comprehensive foreign and security policy strategy for the Union. Clarity of vision is needed on how the EU intends to make coherent use of its various instruments to advance its goals and how the EU intends to make use of the possibilities brought along uh, with the Lisbon Treaty. With these positions, uh, Finland will continue its support for a strong common foreign and security uh, and defence policy, as well as recent initiatives to strengthen this. My second point on the way forward for the EU is to continue the enlargement process. It has, as I said, spread peace and stability in Europe, and even as recently from the 1990s, the so-called European perspective has been a major stabilization uh, instrument in the Western Balkans and elsewhere. Croatia will soon become the 28th member uh, of the Union, which is a positive signal to all countries in the Western Balkans. And hopefully it will also give them a boost to continue not only important reforms, but also the reconciliation process and deepen regional cooperation. The UK and Finland are firm supporters of the EU's enlargement process. Finland, although a relatively new member state, has been able to make a significant contribution in this area, notably when during uh, our presidency in 1999, Turkey was granted official status as a candidate country for accession. Also during our second uh, uh, presidency, we were able at least to avert one then threatening train crash, but uh, with the signals uh, system not working, these train crashes are, are <coughs> set to happen again unless something is done. And that means that the work has to continue on the basis that while, of course, any country uh, aiming to become a member of the Union must fulfill all the criteria, but the, also the European Union has to respect its commitments. And this concerns, above all, Turkey, that has become an important economic and political actor, not only in its own neighbourhood, but also in other parts of the uh, world. Turkey's active foreign policy and contribution to the stability and reform processes in its neighbourhood can be an asset also for the EU's foreign policy. Having a European Turkey inside the EU would definitely increase the weight and credibility of the EU as a global actor. It is thus of strategic European interest 
that the membership in the Union remains attractive to Turkey as well as other third countries. My third point on the way forward for the Union is to increase our responsiveness to the concerns of our citizens. And this should start with explaining once again the origins and continuing benefits of European integration, which are sometimes taken for granted by people who do not know their history. And this is unfortunately a, a, a characteristic of our time that history is being lost. That means that we are becoming unaware, uh, inadvertently prisoners of history in the wrong way. <coughs> Views in Europe converge on so many issues and especially on the ones that really count for the future of our citizens. It is in all our interests that the EU uh, uses its uh, weight in uh, trade negotiations and other processes for their benefit. And it is also important that responses to their concerns, uh, concerns on climate change, continuing poverty in the least developed countries, violations of human rights and lack of gender equality just to name a few examples, are also taken seriously uh, as priorities for the EU. European integration has obvious limits. Hard power and military capabilities alone cannot and should not define the EU's role. The EU has neither uh, the need, ambitions, nor means to become a military superpower. The EU as a sui generis kind of organization, less than a federal state, but with a large degree of supranational decision-making and pooled sovereignty, is unique. Also in its capacity, capacity to use a variety of different instruments, including trade, economic and development cooperation, and comprehensive crisis management instruments. And one relatively newly developed strength of the EU has its, uh, is its strong contribution to civilian crisis management, for which there is much demand in the world today. But having said this, this all looks fine on paper, but when we look at the realities on the ground, uh, we see that there is a lot to be done to make uh, the EU use its wonderful array of instruments uh, in a uh, coherent uh, and effective manner. A more coherent European role will complement uh, European countries' bilateral relations as well as work done in uh, other uh, fora such as NATO, OSCE and the Council of Europe. There is a well-functioning political framework and security architecture in Europe to where each organization has its relative strengths. However, there is still also room for increased cooperation on a regional basis. And one example of this is the Nordic region comprising Greenland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Iceland. The Nordic countries have actually set an example for wider European integration with its many innovations, starting from passport-free travel, a common labour market, and local election voting rights for Nordic citizens living in another Nordic country. These were all well adopted in the Nordic framework long before they became part of the European Union. 
and close cooperation within the Nordic countries continues in many areas. But particularly in uh, the last uh, years, uh, progress has been uh, rapid in the field of security and defense cooperation. In addition to a long tradition of cooperation in UN crisis management, with more recent examples from the UN-mandated EU and NATO operations, this now includes uh, also cooperation in building military uh, capabilities. At their meeting in Helsinki last April, the Nordic foreign ministers declared their country's intention to cooperate in meeting the challenges in the area of foreign and security policy in a spirit of solidarity. Foreseeable security threats include, for example, natural and man-made disasters and cyber and terrorist attacks. Should a Nordic country be affected, the others will, upon request from that country, assist with uh, relevant means. Intensified Nordic cooperation will be undertaken fully in line with each country's security and defence policy and complementing existing European and Euro-Atlantic uh, cooperation. And I stress this last point because we also have a so-called solidarity clause in the uh, treaties uh, of the European Union, but I think we, it would be beneficial if we were able to uh, agree more on what this actually entails. It is not just a declaration, it should also have some more concrete uh, basis uh, in, in the event of uh, uh, being needed. The tragic event in Utøya, Norway, reinforced the sentiment of communality and solidarity across the Nordic area. Norwegians have shown us an encouraging and admiring example of upholding democracy and the rule of uh, law when these values come under direct attack. Looking ahead, prospects for deepening Nordic cooperation are very favourable, as the Nordic countries have opted for different solutions uh, regarding membership in the EU and NATO. Nordic cooperation while very valuable in itself, can also open additional opportunities at a practical level. And furthermore, Nordic cooperation could also serve as a model in the wider European and Euro-Atlantic context, also in the area of pooling and sharing of military capabilities. But of course, this is not what the Nordic countries are best known for. The so-called Nordic model of a welfare state based on uh, combining economic competitiveness with equality and social well-being can offer food for thought also for efforts to respond to global and European challenges. Nordic countries have undergone deep and often painful reforms to overcome difficult times in uh, economic terms and they have shown a model of solidarity when Iceland was hit by a severe crisis. And perhaps it should also be said that the Nordic model as a concept was not actually invented in the Nordic countries, but rather it was outside observers who first used the concept already in the 30s to characterize Nordic societies. But since then we have been happy to adopt the concept 
and have openly shared our views and experiences with uh, those who are keen to understand why all the five Nordic <coughs> countries usually end up among the ten, uh, top ten in most international beauty contests, where countries <laughs> of the world are rated on the basis of their educational achievements, environmental responsibility, <coughs> social welfare, competitivity, or even happiness. How to measure this, I don't know, but that's why I call them beauty contests. But I think that they show something which is still quite relevant. And by the way, my absolute favorite among these beauty contests is the index of uh, failed states, which shows that Finland is the least failed state in the world. <laughs> and I particularly uh, like this uh, because uh, the term least failed state implies that we too can have some failures and that we too can do better. <clears throat> At the global level, Nordic uh, countries will promote free and fair trade, based on upholding and developing the current universal WTO-based regime in the way that needs, the needs of the least developed countries are recognized and supported. Nordic countries favor setting high standards for environmental and consumer protection, human rights and core labor standards. And this can be a successful model of not focusing too narrowly on increased short-term economic productivity, but also on sustainability and well-being and uh, on investment in human capital, thus maintaining long-term competitiveness and positive incentives for international, uh, internal stability in our societies. Foreign and security policy in the Nordic countries has been based on pragmatism, on values but not ideologies, on openness to international cooperation. Hopefully that is something in that spirit which could be replicated uh, in the European Union to revive the will to work together for a more coherent and effective foreign uh, and security policy. And by the way, the need for a stronger European role in international relations and uh, global governance is not only a European view supported by our people, even those who otherwise are, uh, regard themselves as Eurosceptics think that Europe should have a stronger voice in international uh, management, but it is also something which others in the world expect of us. They also want a stronger Europe, stronger European leadership. And this is obviously in the interest of all our member states and we need each one uh, to contribute in shaping the, shaping the EU to be what we all expected and wanted to be. And this is also what our citizens deserve. Thank you. Thank you. We have, uh, I think, precisely 10 minutes for Q&A. Uh, I'm going to invite questions uh, in a moment. If you could make sure that the questions are short, we're going to invite uh, the Minister to respond equally briefly, if you may. Uh, let's, let me open to questions. Uh, John Palmer, there's a, a microphone on this way. <coughs> Thank you very much. I had the pleasure of discussing some of these European issues with Kitumaya uh, many years ago before he became such a 
distinguished uh, foreign minister, I've got two brief questions. You referred to the need for member states to give more support uh, to the high representative in the area of foreign and security policy. I wonder, can you just develop that a little bit? Some, uh, in what ways would you, for example, like to see her or whoever occupies that role allowed to express more openly the direction they think the union should take? Of course, she has to operate on a mandate, but prior to decision, setting out the direction that she'd like the union to go. And secondly, briefly, uh, you referred to enlargement. Are you satisfied with the status of the neighborhood countries in terms of uh, uh, apparently being excluded from eventual European Union membership, countries like Ukraine? What is your feeling about that? Do you mind if we take two more questions? Sure. Please? We're desperately tight for time. No. We'll take the gentleman at the front, please. Thank you very much for your comments. Um, I'm wondering, thinking realistically, what would you hope to be the relationship between the European Union and both Turkey and Russia in 10 years' time? Okay. And I think it's going to be the last question. Gentleman right over here, please. Thank you, Petr Sassoulis from the European Movement. Um, Shrinking budgets in the EU have made certain member states to cooperate more in terms of defense and security. And that cooperation is taking place at a bilateral level rather than across EU level. Do you think that's the right way to go about? Is it going to produce more cooperation in defense, or is it just going to limit it on the bilateral level? Okay. Minister. Well, um, I think the problem with the EU's uh, lack of uh, uh, commitment to the common foreign and security policy is that uh, member states today, particularly the larger ones, use the EU when but only when it suits their own interests. There is no a priori commitment that you make compromises and work within the European Union for its sake, which however is the only way that we can expect the European Union to be taken seriously by our partners. Unless we have a common position policy and stick to it, all of us, nobody will take us seriously. And we have already seen the effects of this, lack of this uh, uh, cohesiveness in the European Union. Obviously, yes, uh, I would want whoever is the high representative to also show, show more leadership. And I, I think there's a particular problem that um, uh, although we have now done away with the uh, competition between the uh, external affairs commissioner and high representative by combining the two works. We, the high representative has not yet taken uh, the role uh, she should also as vice president of the commission. So her work as a commissioner is mostly incidental and this is reflected also in the fact that there is still I would say even some competition between the various uh, other commissioners who are responsible for one or two fields of uh, uh, for uh, external relations. Um, so it's it's a question of commitment, uh, uh, prior commitment. Uh, I also would want to see our meetings arranged more efficiently, more effectively, with papers being delivered somewhat earlier before and also discussions which really lead to something else if just saying well we give uh, the high representative the mandate which means that uh, uh, the member states will still keep controlling uh, what uh, she does or do, can, uh, can or cannot do. Um, as for the enlargement question I think we haven't excluded Ukraine 
At least nobody has done that openly, and I wouldn't do that. Ukraine is certainly in Europe, but nobody sees that Ukraine could be within the next 20 years a member. But uh, I think Ukraine has the same uh, possibility if her people want it, and when she fulfills the criteria to join the European Union. But that is a, a long, long way off. And I think that geography here also, uh, geography also includes uh, the other remaining countries in, in, in Eastern Europe. But geography also excludes North Africa, and I think it also excludes Central Asia from, from Europe, but that does not exclude developing uh, relations uh, with all of these countries uh, in a much more deep, deeper fashion than today. Where will Turkey and Russia be in 10 years' time? Uh, it would be overtly optimistic to say that Turkey would be a member of the European Union, but I hope that in 10 years' time we could have at least a definite date for Turkish membership. Uh, Russia, I hope, at the best terms, we would have, of course, a new agreement, which we have, we have been, which has been open for several years now, uh, and th that uh, uh, Russia would more definitely subscribe to the same values and implement them uh, as as we do. But uh, Russian developments are always one step forward, forward to backwards, or vice versa depending on how you look at it. But if Russian and the Russian leadership is serious about their ambitions for modernization, there's no way they will achieve this without uh, uh, becoming closer to uh, sharing our values uh, and strengthening civil society and real democracy. But that still uh, will be a long, a long process. I think these were the questions. There's a question about uh, reduced yes. for defense. Well, um, I, I, I think that that is something that has to be done everywhere, by the way. We are spending actually too much on arms and, and on the kind of arms that are not really, won't be, provide any answer to the real security threats. This is not saying that we don't need military capabilities, uh, but they are never the answer or the sole answer to any of the security threats that we are, we are facing. And I think that uh, given the economic environment, we will see countries uh, which otherwise have been uh, uh, increasingly uh, putting money into armaments such as Russia and the United States actually uh, reduce their, their spending as well and be uh, more, uh, more leaner in, in terms of defense capability. But I think what is important is that we also in Europe move forward on the common security and defense policy. And we in Finland firmly support the proposals which originally came from the Weimar Trio, which now has been also worked on by the High Representative, and we hope that this can be done at, at 27, meaning that the UK, at the end of the day, will also be a party to that. But uh, if this is not possible, that cannot or should not prevent uh, others from moving forward. But I wouldn't want to exclude anyone. I think it's important that as long as and far as possible, the EU at, at keeps together at 27. I think we might just have time for one last quick question. Uh, could we take the lady uh, towards the back, please? If we can make it a quick question and a brief answer, please. Um, I was just interested that you said that um, you know you can sort of use the model from the Nordic countries and apply that to the EU. The thing is that the Nordic countries, I mean, I'm from Finland originally myself, you know, most Nordic countries are very law-abiding, kind of... Um, well-behaved sort of um, type people. I'm just interested how you think you can apply that to the Italians and the Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> a completely different kind of mindset. Thank you. 
Europe will obviously be built on stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I don't think that we expect the Greeks or anyone else to become Nordics overnight. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I think that. But, but if you are a, a party to international agreements, if you are a party to a, an organization, a community which has uh, clear rules, everybody should stick by their rules. And there should be also be more better uh, mechanisms for monitoring and even sanctioning that this takes place. And this is what we are doing in the European Union with the so-called six-pack of uh, economic uh, uh, coordination uh, uh, so as to eliminate future crisis. I think we have, at, in, in 2013, we may have, with the permanent stability mechanism and with the six-pack and perhaps with some seven-up to it, uh, we'll have uh, the means in place for averting future crises. But our main problem is how do we live until 2030 with the present crisis, for which there is no as yet clear answer. Thank you. I thought the lecture was in danger of leaving us on an optimistic note. But, uh, <laughs> uh, thank you for that reality check at the end of the, the lecture. Um, could I, before finishing, uh, I'm going to ask you to stay in your seats. Uh, we must vacate the room by 2 o'clock. Uh, but if we could let the minister uh, vacate the room uh, first, that would be uh, logistically easier. Uh, before finishing, uh, can I invite you to uh, join me in giving a very warm thank you uh, for this lecture and your willingness to answer the question.